0: G'day and welcome to Overdrive, a program that looks at the facts, fantasies and fallacies of anything to do with motoring and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we have some feedback about last week's stories of making adventurous long trips in a car. Comments included lovely towns on the old highway, but there were locations where you could get booked. Also driving when you are tired and an unusual and perhaps unsafe way to cope with the fog over the Blue Mountains. And in our feature sections, we have an interview about Sydney to Melbourne trips with Alan Finlay, who is our resident traffic engineer, very articulate, personable, but also very precise in his memories. And an interview with a young lady who is using artificial intelligence not to make conclusions, but to give insights on which humans can make more informed decisions. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or the socials, Facebook and Instagram or podcasts or YouTube by looking for Cars Transport Culture. This program was originally broadcast on the 30th of September, 2023. We did a story last week about a driving from Sydney to Melbourne, taking your time, and some of the nicest stops was to take a slight detour from the motorway to little towns on the old highway. Now, we stopped at Dugiong, not far from Yass. Heading south on the old highway, it has a long, flat, straight section till you pass the swimming pool and then the St George Hotel. There, the road climbs steeply. Many a truck or car would try and build up a bit of speed on the flat before taking the steep hill. Needless to say, the police used this location as a speed trap. A colleague of mine back in 1968 was driving his Mini Cooper down the highway to get to Wagga and his speed creeped up to 40 miles per hour as he started the hill climb. I think the speed limit was 35 miles per hour. It's a smidgen under 60 kilometres an hour. Now, a policeman pulled him over and asked him to sit in the passenger seat of the patrol car and mentioned that it wasn't necessary for him to get booked. My colleague interpreted this as meaning the policeman would take a bribe. My colleague refused to participate. Now, other sites for getting booked on the old highway were the appropriately named Bookum. Nominative determinism, I wonder. Also, Yas and Tarkata. I wonder if you remember a particular spot or a particular event, which I suppose ruined your holiday. One person wrote in with a comment, I remember before Jugeong was bypassed. I used to grab second gear in the old Gemini and wind it right out in second and third to pass as many trucks as possible as they ground slowly up the hill, all the while keeping an eye out for the wallopers. We received some other comments, including some that reflected on safety. Jack said, When I was at uni, a mate of mine with a Datsun 1600 was driving home to Adelaide for a visit and invited me and another desperate to share the driving, which was a joke as we all started off wide awake and didn't feel like sleeping. I ended up doing the last stint into Adelaide after the Hay plane after being awake for 15 hours and found the guidepost had turned into kangaroos and the rocks on the side of the road were rabbits. He did add, much more sensible these days, and the Niagara Cafe in Gundagai is a nice place to have a break. I did reply and said, when we competed in car rallies through the night on dirt roads in distant locations, the most dangerous thing we did was drive home after competing. The trees looked like polar bears, And the polar bears look like trees. And one other aspect of coping with difficult situations, perhaps in a less than desirable manner, Graham said, In the 1970s and 1980s, I often drove over the Blue Mountains late on Friday nights and returned to Sydney on Sunday nights. I was not a slow driver, but found a quicker and more relaxing way to get through the fog. It was simple. Just find the long-distance newspaper delivery truck and follow behind him they did the same journey every night knew every inch of the road and went like a bat out of hell Fred added the comment do those Formula One paper trucks still exist you can leave a comment on any of our posts on social media be it Instagram or Facebook or on YouTube just look for Cars Transport Culture sites You're listening to Overdrive we put a post up on our social media sites, Cars Transport Culture, about driving a long distance, Sydney to Melbourne in this case. And it brought back a flood of memories of what it was like in the old times and what's happened to some of those towns that have been bypassed with the new, relatively modern motorways. person who understands these matters, both in terms of transport planning, traffic engineering, and human behaviour, is our good friend Alan Finlay, who joins us on the line now. G'day, Alan. G'day,
1: David. I drove a Corolla down there. Is there any Corollas in your family? Not these days, no, but my sister, uh, her first car was a used Corolla, one of the first models. Uh, It was called Clarissa, of course, Clarissa the Corolla. And um, a good mate of mine, um, when I was at university days, he had uh, the second model Corolla, He modified it slightly by putting on a uh, a hot exhaust system. I think it was called a Kleinig muffler in those days. And uh, he also put in reclining bucket seats. Is that to hold you firmly while you're driving, the car? I'm sure it was something to do with that. I'm sure that was the only reason for the reclining bucket seats. Thank you, yes. It was a time when we named our cars, wasn't it? Yes. I don't. I didn't have any names for my cars, but I know my mother called her first car, it was an FC Holden, and she called it, for whatever reason, Gertrude. I don't know why.
0: The lady next door, uh, God rest her soul, and you called her Volkswagen Herbie. Of course. Perhaps that's when we had a more emotional contact to them. But nonetheless, interesting times in terms of Corollas. But what about driving down south, Sydney to Melbourne, when was the first time you
1: ever did that? I first did that trip in 1974, late 1974, on my way to uh, a driving holiday in Tasmania. So I chose to drive south down the Prince's Highway, and I can't quite believe it now, but I drove from Sydney to Lakes Entrance in Victoria in one day. That's what, about 500, 600 kilometres would that be? Yes, it would be easily that, I think I haven't I haven't looked at it a distance, but uh, it was a long drive and of course in those days the Prince's Highway was uh, nothing like it is uh, now. but on the other hand there wasn't all that much traffic around, so I suppose you could probably make good good time. Princes, of course it's not Princess Highway, it's Princes, named after the Prince of
0: Wales who later became a little bit, uh, well, not a little bit, a rather significant if divisive character in the royalty. He was later King Edward VIII who abdicated. He came out here in 1820, I believe. The Prince's Highway is down the Coast Road, whereas they've decided to make and emphasise the main route, quite understandably, as the inland route, the Hume Highway, possibly a bit shorter and easier to, in most cases, to build better quality roads. You say they have improved the Prince's Highway a bit, but 74, that would have been well before things like the Kiama
1: Bypass. Oh, absolutely! In fact, I think the only part of the road in those days that was a motorway standard would have been the uh, the section immediately south of Sydney, uh, probably from Waterfall to um, to the top of Eye Pass, and then um, I think the Mount Oosley Road was was built at that stage but certainly um, nothing much south of Wollongong. There were certainly no divided carriageways or uh, any motorway sections uh, south of Wollongong in those days. The Mount
0: Oosley w- was built because that bypass, that horrible section of road known as the Bulleye Pass, a great test of a car as to whether it would boil on the way up. That's right. Particularly with family on board. But Mount Oosley, of course, was built in 1942 as a war issue is to provide opportunity for in case we had to do transport. I had a look now at the average speed and my navigation system would tell me to go now on the Prince's Highway, even now with some of those improvements, the average speed would be 81 kilometres an hour. If you go down to Hume, the average speed would be over 102 kilometres an hour, assuming no stops, of course, which is not realistic in
1: that sense. But while you're travelling... It's an indication of how the roads have improved, hasn't it? Absolutely. And the Hume Highway, of course, uh, having been chosen by the federal government as part of the national highway system, was the one that had all of the money uh, put into it for the improvements. And of course, it services a lot more important uh, towns uh, along the way, not to take anything away from our lovely coastal villages on the on the south coast. But the Hume also, of course, services Canberra um, with the branch off with the Federal Highway and the Barton Highway, mm. it also goes through uh, major regional centres like Albury and Wodonga, and it's also quite close to Wagga Wagga, which is our largest inland regional city.
0: But it has by- bypassed those towns. Did you, perhaps not in your youth, but uh, well, though you did say uh, in that case that uh, did you often stop on a trip of over well, near nine hundred to a thousand kilometres? Would you stop
1: halfway? Yes, uh, even on my uh, epic journey to Lake entrance, I'm sure we stopped uh, at several locations, not least of which to fuel up, of course, because uh, the car in those days wasn't getting such uh, great fuel economy as they would in the in the current day. So we would have stopped for petrol, and I'm sure we stopped for lunch and probably a, a morning or afternoon tea break as well. What car were you in in 1974? It was my uh, 1973 model LJ Tirana and you didn't go deaf no, no that was i think that was before i put the uh, the gtr muffler uh, modification on it so it was a standard exhaust system <laughs> um, but of course um, no air conditioning and uh, no heating and uh, i think the one luxury option i had was a push button radio that's uh, remarkably different isn't it it is yes i can't survive without listening to
0: podcasts now but i i am getting old you would stop at some um, towns and stay overnight i think you mentioned the gundagai might have been a town
1: you stopped at yes well on on that particular journey on our way back we came back up the hume highway uh, we stopped at albury i think having come off the the hobart or the devonport ferry uh, in the morning we drove as far as albury and stayed overnight in albury and then we drove straight through from albury to sydney to get back on that journey but in subsequent years, we've um, we've been to Melbourne a few times and we have stayed, I think on one occasion we stayed in Wagga Wagga, another time we stayed in Gundagai, and uh, most recently when we were down there in January this year, we stayed at Rutherglen on the way down. That's west
0: of Albury. Actually, we did that. We went west of Albury on the way down and stayed overnight at a place called Howlong. What a lovely name. Howlong. Yes, how long it took you to get there from Sydney? (laughs) About 35 or so k's west of Albury. But it then gave you the chance to drive through those little towns like
1: Chiltern. Yes, that's right, Chiltern and Springhurst and and others to get back towards the Hume and get onto the Hume to uh, use the bypasses of all of the other towns. It's amazing these days just how few towns you actually go through. If you you did try to do the drive in one go or in, in two legs, You don't pass through many towns at all. Uh, You pass on the outskirts of Albury and uh, you bypass uh, every other town along the way, basically.
0: The now-called Transport for New South Wales boasts that you could drive from Albury to Coffs Harbour without having going through a traffic light. Mm,
1: Not quite, not quite, because... If you think about the section around Newcastle, uh, the Sydney-Newcastle freeway finishes at Beresford. Yes. And you have to go through a couple of uh, traffic lights to get across the bridge at Hexham and then up through Raymond Terrace. But I think once you leave Raymond Terrace heading north, yes, the first set of traffic lights you would encounter would be in Coffs Harbour. They lied to me. (laughs) Well, I think they like to uh, imagine the future, David, and say this is our utopian vision that uh, one day you'll be able to drive all of those distances without going through any of those dreadful traffic lights, as we know.
0: We talk about the upgrades, but it's taken a long while. You would remember Gundagai
1: and going across that old rickety wooden bridge. Yes. To get across the floodplain. And in fact, this year when we were going down to Melbourne, we did go through Gundagai to look at the bridge, which has now been removed. I don't know whether you're aware of that. The the bridge has now been dismantled. So uh, one can no longer go across the old uh, rickety bridge. You can go underneath what, what was left of it. But yes, in the in those early days, um, Gundagai uh, certainly had to go through Gundagai. You went through Goulburn, Jugiong, Gunning, all of those towns along the way, and uh, of course the famous town of Bookham. If
0: how long is named appropriately, Bookham's got to be pretty well up there?
1: Yes, that's right. Of course, it's spelt B-O-O-K-H-A-M, but um, it was renowned in the early days because it was one of the New South Wales Police Force's uh, favourite radar spots or or speed trap spots because she came off a a very fast section of uh, open rural road into a 60-kilometre-per-hour township, and it was uh, difficult for a lot of people to... Comply with that lower limit, and the police knew that, and uh, there were lots of tickets written in Bookham. So that that's why they called the the uh, motoring aficionados used to call it Bookham because they sure did. <laughs> when you drove, as you say, there wasn't
0: dual carriageway. Did you long to see those signs overtaking lane
1: five kilometres ahead? Yes, there's no doubt about that. They were um, they were very important opportunities, but. The other thing is, my recollection was there was um, so little traffic, relatively speaking, compared to today, that it was relatively easy to overtake other vehicles just on the two-lane section. Ah. There were plenty of gaps in the opposing traffic. The other thing, though,
0: was that trucks were not nearly as powerful. If you got stuck behind a truck, you could be
1: uh, there for what appeared to be a long time, although in reality probably wasn't. That's definitely true. The trucks of those days uh, certainly weren't as powerful as they are today, and on uh, sections of road like the Razorback between uh, Camden and Picton, if you didn't manage to strike the truck where the overtaking lane was, the the uphill overtaking lane, you could be behind the truck for a long time. It would have been 10 minutes or or easily. Which, Which feels like an eternity. Absolutely, yes, particularly if you've been able to, in other sections, been able to keep up a reasonable sort of speed.
0: The Razorback was one where the truckies had a blockade, didn't they?
1: Yes, that's right. That was over uh, road user charges, I think, or or registration charges. And, uh, yes, they very... Staged quite a successful blockade on Razorback because there literally was no other way around on the Hume Highway at that at that time.
0: We did a history on the Razorback Road, including not only that one which has now been bypassed, but the one before it, which was now a little narrow, dirty dirt road going up there. The local historian did that, uh, wrote a book about it. You talked about Gundagai. It's a lovely main street, bucolic town in a way, isn't it? The character of an old town. To have big trucks and that rumbling through
1: them is a tragedy. Now that that's bypassed, they're lovely places to visit. They are, yeah. Um, We stayed one night in in a converted church, I think, in Gundagai uh, when we were (laughs) on our way to Melbourne once. We enjoyed a nice meal at one of the local pubs and the uh, and the cafe. There's a famous cafe in Gundagai, which was uh, run by one of the uh, early Greek families, as a lot of those uh, rural cafes were.
0: And that was Alan
1: Finlay, our resident
0: traffic and transport expert, talking about his own personal experiences on driving trips down major highways. The full interview with Alan can be heard through our website, drivenmedia.com.au or podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. Look for Cars, Transport, Culture. You're listening to Overdrive. A widespread general concern about artificial intelligence is that it will analyse a situation and then make a definitive conclusion without any input from human beings. But this overlooks the possibility of using artificial intelligence to give us insights on what is happening, not final conclusions. And from these insights can come an understanding of the emotions, the feelings, and the actual actions of people that are reflected in the demand and the use of our transport system. Now, Evelyn Sung is a transport engineer and planner with the large consulting firm WSP, and she's been doing some fascinating research into this particular area. She joins us on the line now. Evelyn, thank you very much for your time.
2: Thank you very much for having me, David. A pleasure to be on here with you.
0: We've heard of this GPT, mm-hmm. which is often assumed to use for young students to be able to get the artificial intelligence to write a essay for them. Mm-hmm. You're using it in a different way. How does that work?
2: Yes. Yeah, so GPT, it's short for Generative Pre-Transformer. I don't know about you or the audience Is listening to me, it sounds like a jumble of really big words um, <laughs> coming together. But generally, it's pop- popularized by this online tool called ChatGPT. And what it does is the user can interact with it by giving it an input. Like, like you have said, write me an essay about ancient Rome, about a particular ancient person I'm investigating. And it goes through the entire vast knowledge that is the internet and gives you an answer or an essay defined if you want it to be 500 words essay based on what you have asked it to do. So, it's a powerful tool that has have had this vast pre-accumulated knowledge from all the internet um, and uses it to provide you responses to what you have answers to. That is one application for the use of the tool to interact with it in that way, but you can also harness the knowledge that it has, ha- it has through of the internet for, um, for specific purposes that you would want it to do. And so if for my research topic, I've asked it to essentially go through and summarize for me thousands of reviews that are available on the internet at specific train stations in Sydney to ask it to provide me the generic or general sentiment of what people are talking about at specific stations. And then um, these can also be user-defined classifiers. So aside from asking it to provide me with a summary of the positive, negative, or neutral sentiments of um, a specific review, which I can therefore like quantify into I have you know, 80% positive sentiment reviews, or, and so on and so forth. I can then also ask it to provide me a summary of what people might be talking about. Are they talking about accessibility? Are they talking about cleanliness of a specific station and other categories that I have d- defined for it to summarize? So, that's how I have utilized the GPT tool in a kind of way to help me for the specific purpose,
0: yeah. You're not asking it to say, please redesign the station or anything like that. You're not even saying, define to me the absolute and utter problem as weighed up by the whole thing. You're asking to give the insights broken Mm -hmm. into good, bad and ugly about it, of which you then add your own development of understanding of what that might mean. Is that a fair reflection?
2: Yes, that is correct. And I think I think a lot of people approach these AI tools with a huge problem like build a station, build a city, and ask for it to solve it. But I think we should really, the system that we exist in is make, made up of smaller parts that contribute to a bigger whole, like a network of systems. And you sort of have to like really understand a small component of it in order to really like apply it in a larger scale. So even understanding really what people you've rebuilt Central Station, it's gone through a period of disruption during the construction phase. And now we have pretty fairly new uh, Central Station. Like, But how are people feeling about that? How are people engaged with it? Are the is This is the answers that we want to find out first before... We design a different or um, redevelop a different uh, a newer station and take what the insights that you have gathered from the people and what people are saying at that specific station and apply it forward to um, a future design that you are doing. And so what this research was really interested in finding out about is really kind of the age- old question of you know engaging with the public, through an accessible form, through social media data.
0: It's an accessible form, but it's potentially a more honest form. You you would know from standard surveys, please answer one to five. Mm -hmm. Do you strongly disagree, agree, neutral, agree or whatever? Well, there are biases put into that. If you ask people about buying a car and give them a list of features, a lot of them will tick safety, but they may not actually spend the money to do it. It can be a answering a, p- a point of a traditional survey in a way that people might think people wanted them to answer or what might be the, the proper way to answer that rather than the way you actually do it. You're actually measuring how people in an uncontrolled way express their feelings and then try to make some sense of that.
2: Yes, definitely, and the internet can definitely be a form for that, a raw flow of opinions and emotions that exists for us to understand and harness and maybe use to our benefit and potential. And you raise a good point there, like surveys can be designed in a certain way that only frames, uh, that wants to gather like a certain response from people that doesn't really encompass everything that might be going on under the surface, yeah.
0: Professor David Henscher would uh, push towards stated preference surveys where instead of saying, would you like to have a train line, say something like, would you be prepared to pay X amount for trips if we put a train line in? That at least starts to try and get an idea of how people may use reality, that is the cost of doing it, and that cost may be you will have to change here or do that. It puts in a reality check to it, but you're measuring that reality check as people use it.
2: Yes, that's correct.
0: You've picked several stations to look at and found a different response, a different attitude, experience from three stations in Sydney?
2: That's exactly. So stations, as my chosen place typology for analysis, has been really interesting and you can define it as if, if you're if you're a transport specialist and if you were an architect and you were actually interested in looking at you know specific development sites or or if you have a development site and you have cafes and restaurants and various points of interest around your development site you can also analyze the reviews that have people have attributed to these places and i have chosen train stations as a place typology because of its interface with the public. And you generally find a lot of people expressing emotions and sentiment at these stations. So this was an interesting place typology to analyze. And that was all just used, defined by within the framework of this research. It was a novel application to use Google Reviews. Sentiment analysis is kind of where the subject domain area sits in. So I've just used GPT to conduct my sentiment analysis. The sentiment analysis has been existing for a while. It's a machine learning technique, and usually it's pretty smart computer scientists and research places conducting and doing it. And it's there's a huge barrier for sort of a person like me who isn't Really, a computer scientist, but you know, is interested in looking at data and information on how to harness information. It's predominantly used in sort of products and services industries when they're trying to understand people's reviews about a vacuum cleaner, or like you have said, as, to analyze you know Twitter sentiment. So, um, sentiment analysis. When I first engaged with it earlier on, was used by quite a lot of journalists to analyze people's sentiment online during maybe election time. Kind of a novel way of looking at sentiment analysis and having the ability to attribute sentiment to places rather than, as I had mentioned just previously, Twitter captures a time, a, a space and time. But right now, like applying it to, whether it's a development site or a train station or you know a university, it's um, attributing sentiment to a place. And Google reviews represent, you know, an available data set that sort of ties those sentiments to specific places because people are going to these places and specifically leaving their sentiment, their reviews, their opinions at that specific place.
0: And that was Evelyn Sung from WSP, the major consulting firm, about her research looking at the sentiments of users of the transport system. The full interview with Evelyn can be heard on our website, drivenmedia.com.au, or through podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Look for the site, Cars Transport Culture. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Alan Finlay, Evelyn Sung, and Mark Wesley for their great help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or the socials and podcasts. Look for Cars, Transport, Culture. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.